Well, we're going to see today that that about sums it all up, how deep the Father's love for us. If you turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, and we'll be starting today in verse 22. We come today to one of the greatest and one of the deepest doctrines of the Christian faith, one that more than any other will leave you undone, as Job said he was. If your experience is anything like mine, with a wonder that almost hurts, a wonder that's like an answer to things that we don't understand, an answer to some of life's most difficult questions. You know, I became a Christian when I was six, and according to my mother, I don't remember this, but I had all these theological questions that I would pepper them with. And apparently there were no end to them, and they do their best to answer them, but many of them couldn't be answered. And so again and again, we got into this kind of game where they would resort to saying this. They taught it to me. They'd say, Brian, what is God's mind like? And I would say, a great big ocean. And then they'd say, what is your mind like? And I would say, a little teacup. And they said there'd be a, fi- a smile on my face because somehow that was the answer. Somehow it would satisfy me as a child. It kindled a wonder that was the answer. Just as we'll see today, it can satisfy the child that's in us all. There's one doctrine that will do this more than any other that I know of, and that is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God who ordains, we're going to see, everything that comes to pass. And in particular, the emphasis of Romans 9 is the mercy of his sovereignty who ordains everything that comes to pass for the good of his creatures without doing violence to the will of his creatures. We're going uh, to be in some pretty deep waters today, and good thing, we need these deep waters. One reason why so many Christians are so shallow these days is that in many churches, they so rarely plumb the deep things of God, which is one reason why we're going through the book of Romans. There are so many baby Christians out there in America, in good part, because all they get is what you might call truth light what Chuck Swindoll called sermonettes for Christianettes. Milk, not meat. Watered-down infant formula. And new believers need that, yes. But to grow in Christ, we need something more. There's something so deeply wholesome and uh, healthy, something so deeply uh, growth-inducing about really knowing the depths of God in a way that dives beneath the surface rather than just skimming the surface, you know, like we skim the Internet. The pastor's study in my last church, a church we pastored in Vermont, was just the opposite. There were a ton of books The pastor died suddenly of a heart attack, and Julie and I took his place as the interim pastor and wife for two years before we came here, and I got to know him through his books. He even had all of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermons, all 63 thick uh, volumes of them, the one who we call the Prince of Preachers. And I learned as I looked through these books that he delivered the first sermon in volume one uh, when he was 20 years old. It was the very first of 3,544 sermons over 63 years in 63 volumes. And in God's providence, 
that sermon that he first delivered ended up being the perfect introduction to it all. How could he possibly, how could you possibly introduce all those powerful sermons in a way that would do them justice? What could be the foundation for a ministry that ended up being foundational for generations of preachers, myself included? Well, it's what we're going to be talking about today. Spurgeon launched his ministry on January 7th, 1855, by saying this. It's what we actually launched the book of Romans with. It has been said by someone, this is a 20-year-old preacher. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is not truth light. I added that here. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something tremendously improving to the mind in the contemplation of divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our our pride is drowned in its infinity. And while he humbles the mind, he also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply, simply plods around this narrow globe. And then he ends with this. And while humbling and expanding, the subject of Godhead is deeply consoling. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in its immensity, and you will come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing on the subject of Godhead. And it is to this subject, he said, that I invite you this morning. That's how he began, launched his ministry. Today we come to one of the greatest of all the great doctrines of Godhead, of deity, one that will leave you saying... I'm just a teacup. And the wonder that can come from this encounter can answer some of life's most difficult questions, just like it did for me as a child, just like we saw last week it did for Job, where his wonder became the answer. He needed no other answers. The wonder that's involved in the fear of the Lord which is in short supply these days, which Solomon says is the beginning of wisdom. It's in Romans 9, and though our passage today begins in verse 22, to tee it up, uh, last week, back in chapter, uh, verse 19, we saw that the whole passage turns on the question in verse 19, why does God still find fault for who resists his will? Paul had just said that God hardens whoever he desires before they're even born. And the question was, how can God condemn people for the very choices that that he caused them to make? If, as you say, Paul, he's the one who hardens whom he desires. That's not fair. Is there injustice with God? To which Paul answers, on the contrary, verse 20, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
We saw that Paul was far more quick to defend God's sovereign uh, prerogatives, as one man said, than to indulge our interrogatives, our questions. He's far more quick to defend God's rights than to debate God's ways. He had to set things straight first before we'd receive the answer. We saw that God's right to execute his purpose according to his sovereign choice, as Paul said, supersedes all our rights, including our right to life. For does not the potter, verse 21, have the right over the clay? But then, having dealt with our attitude, Paul goes on to address the question. So, here goes. Why does God still find fault? Again, verse 19, who resists his will? And then in verse 22, where we'll start today, he starts answering the question where he says, what if God? He's obviously about to launch into something important here, given the way he teased it up. What if God? He's saying, have you ever considered this? Mightn't you have overlooked something about God himself that might help answer this question? What if God... Listen carefully. Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath destined for destruction. Why does he find fault? Who resists his will? How could he punish people for what he predestined them to do? Listen again. The Living Bible puts it this way. What if God, although he had every right to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What he's saying is this. Yes, he hardens whom he desires. Yes, they are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Yes, he predestined them for destruction before they were ever born. Um, But what if he endured? It goes a lot deeper, we're going to see, but he starts with this. What if he endured them with much patience long after he should have condemned them? Might that make a difference in the approach that you take to this issue? Just Just to kind of start our discussion of this topic he's saying. On one level, Paul's saying, whatever is going on in eternity where he decrees what will happen in history, just look at how it happens in history. Let's start there. And you'll see there are no signs of tyranny, at least not on his part. Paul starts with what we can see in history before he uh, moves on to what we can't see in eternity. Because as someone said, all that we see can beckon us to trust God for all that we can't see. Paul's saying that what we see, what we read about history in his revelation in the Bible, tells us that he is not tyrannically sovereign. No, he's mercifully sovereign. And that should give us grounds to trust God for what we can't see. Because he addresses this question at a deeper level, uh, as we're going to see. He says, essentially, just read through the Old Testament and you'll see that again and again, although men were just asking for it with a fist in their face, just like today. They were just asking for God to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known. And the saints were crying for it. As you'll see all through the Psalms, he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Just like we read in Psalm 103 in our call to worship. 
You see it from the very beginning. In fact, I was reading in Genesis a few months ago where God promises Abraham the land of Canaan. But he says, you can't have it. He says, essentially, you can't have it right now because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That is, they're not evil enough for me to come in and judge them yet through me letting you take over the promised land. And you know how long he gave the Amorites that were there? Um, uh, you know how long he gave them uh, to, to, to come around and how long you can be sure he worked with them? He judged them um, th- uh, before he judged them with the children of Israel. It was 400 years from when he said that to Abraham. 400 years. There's so many other examples of this, but on one level, Paul's reminding them of what God said when he revealed his essential nature to Moses, when he said, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And the entire Old Testament bears witness to this. But there's also something deeper. Something deeper going on here, not through what we can see in history, but in the realm of a great mystery that's in the Godhead's deepest sea. Let's read it again and bear with me. This is not truth light. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Again, why does he find fault? Who resists his will? How could he punish people for what he predestined them to do? Well, he says, yes, he hardens whom he desires. Yes, they are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Yes, he predestined them for destruction before they were ever born. But what if he had to, and listen to this, we're going deeper now. What if he had to endure them with much patience? What would it mean about those vessels of wrath? It would mean that though all this had come about by his predestination, he was responding to them as though it were their decision. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been trying his patience. You can't, you can't be impatient, you know, with a dead puppet whose strings you're pulling, right? You can only be impatient with a real live person. Paul's making an assumption here. He's assuming that because God Almighty had to exercise some real patience, they were making some real choices. These were not, you know, mindless puppets. They they were willing culprits. God wasn't playing games here, pulling their strings and then, you know, blaming them for being jerked around. No, they were yanking his strings too. To the point that it tried his patience. The patience of the, of the one who has the longest fuse in all creation. Who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. They were so b- bad. Man can get so bad. Just look around us today. That God himself, who is the very picture uh, and paragon and perfection of patience had to endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, thereby proving that they deserve to be destroyed. Now, hang on to this a bit, and we'll unpack it a bit further, which means that they were not just mildly guilty because God had already decreed it. No, they were manifestly guilty. That's what he's saying. What we have here is what 
In this verse is what the great expositor, John Murray, the Scottish-born theologian, called the manifest exhibition of their ill desert through God's long-suffering. Why does he find fault? Who resists his will? What Paul is saying is this. Yes, God destined it, but equally, truly, fully, it's their ill desert. God fully destined it, but they fully deserved it. All that's in that one verse. He justly condemns people for the very choices he caused them to make because they freely made those choices, and so they're truly guilty. To which we can only say what Paul does at the very end of this section in Romans 11.33, last verse of the section, where he sums it all up by saying how unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. Like Spurgeon, he said, I am of yesterday, we are of yesterday, and we know nothing. Listen to this. Only sovereignty in the highest conceivable sense, only unsearchable, unfathomable sovereignty could exercise such control that vessels destined for wrath by virtue of his choice actually deserve his wrath by virtue of their choices. It's a great mystery that we're looking at today. It's what John Calvin called a mysterium tremendum, a tremendous thundering deep down mystery. It's the mystery of his sovereignty. So much so that Calvin said, if anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this mystery and tries to understand it, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. And we'll lay our hands on our mouth. Because this doctrine welcomes not our exploration, but our, we're going to see, our exaltation, which is a good part of the answer. Romans 9.22 is what you might call a tip of the iceberg verse, one that's based on a whole lot of other verses. So many, in fact, that Paul doesn't feel the need to say much more. All he had to do was touch on it because he knew it would, or at least it should, for those who go deeper into the scripture, call to mind like this iceberg of a doctrine of which the verse is the tip that's all through scripture. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for this destruction? This verse drives together the doctrines of God's complete sovereignty on one hand, and man's complete responsibility on the other hand. In a way that you find again and again all through Scripture. In fact, I was reading in my devotions from Genesis 20 recently, and there it was again. It was the story of Abimelech, king of Gerar, and how he took Abraham's wife, Sarah, because she was so beautiful. You, you remember the story. And God appeared to the king in a dream and said, Behold, you're a dead man. What? And he said, What? Because this woman you have taken, she is married. And Abimelech said, dead man, I in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. That is, Abraham says she was his sister. I had no idea she was his wife. And anyway, I'm innocent because I haven't even laid with her. And then get this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. Responsibility. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Sovereignty. You see what's going on here? On one hand, you have man's responsibility. On the other, you have God's sovereignty. 
And you see it again and again in the Old and the New Testaments. And together, if you get into it, it's like they can strike a spark in your heart. Sovereignty and responsibility. And so we're going to strike them together here for a bit, a number of times. And as we do, let's pray together that they would kindle a fire in our hearts, a fire of wonder that's at the heart of the fear of God. Through the power of his word in the spirit. Because sovereignty and responsibility are like two logs in the, f- the fire of his glory. These are no stray doctrines. Again and again, the scripture brings them together to stoke wonder in our hearts. Colossians 1.29, for this purpose, I labor responsibility, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me, sovereignty. Philippians 2.12, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, responsibility, for God is at work within you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure, responsibility, or sovereignty. 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, sovereignty. But I labored even more than all of them, responsibility. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me, sovereignty. John 15, 4, abide in me, responsibility. For apart from me, you can do nothing, sovereignty. Isaiah 10, 5, woe to Assyria, responsibility. The rod of my anger. I judged Israel through them, but woe to them, responsibility, The rod of my anger, sovereignty. Jeremiah 24, 7, and I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, sovereignty. And they will return to me with their whole heart, responsibility. 2 Samuel 23, 10, I love this one. Eleazar arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. Ever felt that way? That's our part. Responsibility. But it goes on to say, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, sovereignty. Acts 13, 48. Again, bear with me. Prove you're not a Christianette. Focus. As many who have been appointed to eternal life, sovereignty. As many who have been appointed to eternal life, believed. Responsibility. Luke twenty two twenty two. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Sovereignty. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Responsibility. Acts 2.23, and this man Jesus delivered over by the determined plan of God. Sovereignty. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. Responsibility. There's no end to the examples. But let's go back to Romans 9 for the last one. In Romans 9, 17, Paul quoted from Exodus 9, where God says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, sovereignty. And then Paul sums it up by saying, so then, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, he hardens whom he desires, just like with Pharaoh, he said. Again, sovereignty. And all through that story, too, though, the two come together like logs in a fire. In Exodus 4.21, he said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And again in chapter 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But then two chapters later, in Exodus 9.24, he says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 
You know, some teach that Pharaoh hardened his heart first of his own free will, like outside of God's control. And only then did God confirm the choice by making him harder. But I'm afraid that is not the order of, the, uh, of events that the scripture presents here. Because according to Exodus 4 and 7, it was God's decision first. And then in Exodus 8 and 9, it's equally clear that it's Pharaoh's decision too. Which, of course, is what we've seen again and again. The mystery of God's complete sovereignty working hand in glove in and through man's complete responsibility. Someone said that on one side of heaven's gates, you may have seen this, is the inscription, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.21. But on the other side, once you get in, you turn around. On the other side of heaven gates, it says, no one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same thing. John 6.44. It's as though the best illustration I know to kind of give us an understanding here is that it's as though he's authored a story. As someone said, history is his Story, H-I-S, his, S-T-O-R-Y. It's a true story with real characters. And it's 100% their life, but equally it's 100% his story. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and listen carefully. In Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, Ophelia climbs out, of a out on a branch overhanging a river. The branch breaks and she falls in and drowns. What would you reply if someone asked this? Did Ophelia die because Shakespeare, for poetic reasons, wanted her to die at that moment or because she closed, chose to climb the branch? I think one would have to say for both reasons. Every event in the play happens because of the characters in the play. But every event also happens because of the play's creator, because of the poet who wants it to happen that way. And then he concludes, supernatural providence and natural choice are not competing alternatives. That is, they are not mutually exclusive. They are not either or options, like either Calvinism or Arminianism. No, that fails to understand the mystery. Both sides do. Supernatural providence, he writes, and natural choice are not competing alternatives. Rather, both determine every event because both are one. And that, I would submit to you, is precisely what the scripture teaches. That God Almighty, through the mystery of his sovereignty, has authored a story in which the characters follow parts that are really theirs. So much so that what he determines is, in fact, their decision. For God Almighty, from all eternity, this is the Westminster Confession, and I love this. God Almighty, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will and a freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet neither is he to blame for evil, nor does he do violence to the will of his creatures. Which is why one Scottish theologian said, and I love this, divine providence is a conspiracy of accidents. 
bring those two together. To which we can only say, I am undone. I'm but a teacup. He is the ocean. How unsearchable are his judgments. As Paul said, how unfathomable his ways. We fall down like we sing at the feet of Jesus. That's the answer. How he does it is like impossible to understand. It's unfathomable, but undeniable. And you think, who is this God? Who is this sovereign God who's got the whole world in his hands, whose invisible hand is everywhere present and nowhere seen? Who is this God who hides himself, Isaiah 45, 5? Who is this deity, as one woman said, who is utterly, unfathomably secret, holy, and fleet? In his ways with us. Who is he? Well, this moves us briefly from the mystery uh, of his sovereignty to the supremacy of his mercy. You see, his ways may be hidden from us, but not his heart. Because Paul goes on to reinforce what we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, which is all about the love of God in Paul's heart, the sacrificial love and the fire of the cross. Paul goes on to reinforce what we saw there, that he is not tyrannically sovereign or capriciously sovereign or distantly, you know, disinterestedly sovereign. No, he is mercifully sovereign. This whole chapter on God's sovereignty is suffused with God's mercy from beginning to end. We saw it in verses 1 to 5 two weeks ago. We saw it in the verse we began with, verse 21. He endured, 22, he endured with much patience, God Almighty. And it's all over the place. Paul's showing here, as James said, that we have a God in whom mercy triumphs over judgment. In a love that, as we've seen, will not fail. That nothing can separate us from. So much so that one day all Israel will be saved, as we'll see in chapter 11. He's saying this God has got a very, very long fuse in his sovereignty. He's saying he endured with much patience, verse 22, verse 23, to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. We're going to see that he didn't harden the Jews capriciously, but in the supremacy of his mercy, he did it to soften the Gentiles. That those who are not my people may be called my people, 925. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And even with the Jews, he preserved a faithful remnant, verse 27, so that one day all Israel will be saved in his mercy. Our creator knows like the key to the human heart, the secret of determining its destiny without destroying its agency. And so we're going to see that in closing their hearts, God opened our hearts to him. 
the Gentiles. And not only did his mercy come to us because of his wrath on them, his mercy came to them in the midst of his wrath through grace that is greater than all our sin. We'll see in chapter 11 that his mercy so fills his character that even his wrath is a severe mercy, as we've seen in Romans 2. Even in wrath, he remembers mercy, as it says in Habakkuk 3.2. So much so that Paul concludes it all with an, an overarching statement at the very end of chapter 11, verse 32, by saying, summing it all up, God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. That's what's driving him. But you know, the most tender mercy of all is in our verses for today. By far the tenderest of all his mercies, the most exquisitely tender expression of his kindly heart is his sovereignty in itself, whereby he ordains everything that comes to pass without doing violence to the will of his creatures. Which is to say, he is not in the slightest tyrannical or brutal or forcible in his ways with us. Maybe like someone in your past was with you. No, it, it's all consensual. He holds us so gently that without the slightest violation or, or, or seduction or compulsion, he, he moves us, he woos us, he chooses us to freely choose him. In the story that we call history, in the mercy of his sovereignty. How deep the Father's love for us. Truly, like Spurgeon said, we can turn away with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and I know nothing. Like nothing else, I can stir a wonder that's at the heart of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, which is the beginning of really getting an answer. How do you apply all this? In 1692, the great Puritan writer Thomas Watson wrote a classic called A Body of Divinity. A body of divinity. I like that. A body, an ocean that you can dive into of divinity. That's what this book is. It was one of the books in the Parsons Library in our last church. It was well-worn and underlined and marked because his wife told me he read it numerous times, as had many in his church. By the way, 200 years later, after Watson wrote it, in 1890, none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a preface to a new edition. And it's not surprising he did this because both men were passionate, not about truth light, but about the deeper things of God. Thomas Watson is regarded as the most readable of all the Puritans. And Spurgeon called this the most precious and peerless work of the Puritans takes you to a deeper day. At the end of the chapter on the providence of God, Watson said, let me now speak something by way of application. I'll just read the main headings of his applications, which he then expounds on each one. But here are the section heads. Maybe I'll wet, it'll whet your appetite to read it yourself. Here's how you plunge into the Godhead's deepest sea. One, Admire God's providence. 
That is, let yourself wonder. That's what we were created to do. And then he has a long section on how to do that. Two, learn quietly to submit to God's providence. Three, you that are Christians, believe that all God's providence shall conspire for your good at last. Four, let God's providence be an antidote against immoderate fear that nothing comes to pass but what is ordained by God's decree and ordered by him for you. I wish there were time to read what he says in each of these points of application, but finally, five, let the merciful providence of God cause thankfulness. He concludes by focusing on two things, which I'll conclude with as well. The first relates especially to faith church, given all that you've been through recently. He says, the doctrine of God's providence provides special comfort for the church of God. For it reaches in a more special manner to his church. God waters this vineyard with his blessings and watches over it by his providence. I, the Lord, keep it night and day, Isaiah 27.3. God works sometimes by contraries. He raises his church by bringing it low. The blood of the martyrs has watered the church and made it more fruitful. Exodus 1.12, the more they afflicted them, the much more they multiplied. The church is like a plant that lives by dying and grows by cutting, which is just what's happened here. And now we're seeing the fruit. And then he ends by going from time to eternity. And this is where we'll end too. From time to eternity, when he says, the great mystery of God's providence shall be fully unfolded to us. Now we scarce know what to make of it and are ready to condemn what we do not understand. But in heaven we shall see how all his providences, sickness, losses, suffering contributed to our salvation. Here we see some dark pieces of providence, and it is impossible to judge his work by pieces. But when we come to heaven, we see the full body and portrait of his providence drawn out into its lively colors. It will be glorious to behold. And then he concludes his great chapter on the providence of God with this. Then we shall see a wonder and a mercy in all that comes to pass. Which is precisely Paul's point here in Romans, that there's a wonder and a mercy suffusing all of it. Bottom line, well, as the worship leaders come forward, it's just like we're about to sing. Through it all, Putting it all together, wonder plus mercy. One of the things it spells is four words, great is thy faithfulness.